You're listening to the Yoga Teacher Resource Podcast. Knowledge, techniques, and inspiration for your teaching and your practice. I'm your host, Mado Hesselink. If you're a yoga teacher who loves learning, is passionate about spreading the benefits of yoga, and desires more resources to support your teaching, you're in the right place. Let's get started with today's episode. Hello, yoga teacher. Today's episode is part one of a three-part series on yoga and pain science. My guests for this series are the editors of Yoga and Science in Pain Care, the recently released book by Neil Pearson, Shelley Prasco, and Marlissa Sullivan. All three authors are physical therapists. Neil and Shelley are Canadian, so for my U.S.-based listeners, when in their interviews they refer to their training in physiotherapy, that is physical therapy for us. Today's conversation is all about the basics of pain science. My guest, Neil Pearson, is a physiotherapist, a yoga therapist, and clinical assistant professor at the University of British Columbia. Neil works for the Doctors of British Columbia, developing and delivering continuing medical education on pain management, including yoga. He's a lead contributor to Pain BC's online Pain Foundations course and their Gentle Movement and Relaxation series. Stay tuned to the very end of the episode for a chance to win a copy of Yoga and Science in Pain Care. With that, let's jump into the conversation on pain science basics with Neil Pearson. Neil, welcome to the Yoga Teacher Resource Podcast. Thank you so much for coming on to start off this series about yoga, science, and pain care. Well, thanks for having me. It's, uh, it's great to be able to share these ideas with people. Yeah, I would love to start by hearing a little bit about what your journey has been. Wow. Well, the journey really started with, with, uh, I have to go all the way back in, in university. I I trained to be a phys ed teacher. I wanted to help people move. And, uh, then when I was there, I started to realize I was more interested in very interested in anatomy physiology. And when I was hanging around the, uh, anatomy lab, I met physiotherapy students who told me about physiotherapy and I realized I went there. And um, then really in physiotherapy, I did a lot of different things, but I kept on being interested in patients telling me stories about their pain. I mean, made up stories. I mean, the the story that the person has, what's happened with them since they've been injured. And a lot of times the stories they were telling me didn't match up with what I learned in school. And that got me really curious. Um, You know, I guess as, as humans, when that happens, we can be in a position of saying, oh, that person's just different. But uh, I started to wonder whether what I was taught in school really was the way it, you know, it is. And uh, so I really started to uh, explore that. But it, this was in the late 1980s. And there actually weren't, there was really only one textbook of pain at that time. Um, and it was uh, by Melzack and Wall. And it was, it was a great book, but didn't answer a lot of the questions. And there were no courses on, on it. Nobody was teaching it really in university. So it was a, a really of looking around and looking around and, and continuing to be curious. And then over time, I started to meet other people in the world who were, you know, as we started to get the internet, I started to meet other people around the world who were interested in this. And so I started working in pain management centers uh, to help people with more complex chronic pain problems. And as I was doing that, I started to realize that the, uh, the practices that I was doing in yoga, so as I started practicing yoga more consistently, uh, the, there were a lot of sim- similarities between these two. Um, and that uh, yoga had this very expansive view of the person, whereas in pain management, we had this more biopsychosocial view. And so I guess if I summed up the path, the path started with curiosity and 
uh, trying to learn things that that I couldn't learn through textbooks or or courses, and then starting to realize that contemplative practices and uh, yoga practices really uh, could be one path to help people who have uh, persisting or chronic pain. So we're going to begin this series by talking about the basics of pain, which is so important because a lot of people come to yoga mm -hmm. because they want to relieve some kind of pain, whether it's physical pain, emotional pain, or obviously complex pain. Can you talk to us a little bit about defining pain? How do we do this? How do we understand pain? How do we talk, how do can we even talk about this <laughs> incredibly multi-dimensional topic? I think you, what you just said is the perfect way to start to talk about it is that it's multidimensional. And uh, in there, you mentioned about the idea of a definition, right? There, there is a medical definition of pain. Pain is a human experience. And part of what's happened is that we've medicalized it and turned it into it's a medical thing. Then defined it and missed the, we missed some of the human aspects of that. There, there is a group called the International Association for the Study of Pain, and they define pain as an, un an unpleasant sensory and emotional experience associated with actual or potential tissue damage and described in terms of such damage. So that's their definition. But we don't even need a word about the component parts of that. But what's, what's important is that when we define things, often we're defining things that are more like, uh, more like a noun. And as some of my colleagues say, you know, pain is a process. It's a human experience. It's a verb. And when we try to define things that are processes or experiences, we, we uh, really get into trouble by doing that. And so that we'd be better off to, when we talk about pain, is to start with the idea it's complex. And the best way to understand it is to, to look at it from different perspectives. Like, like holding an object in your hand. I'm not saying the pain's not an object, but you could hold an object in your hand and you could look at it from one perspective and another perspective and, and go along with that. Um, that's sort of what we want to do with pain is to understand it's complex and it has to do with protection and it's like perceptual, other perceptual processes in the body. Um, and there are these sort of the medical perspective you can have of it. And there's uh, philosophical perspectives of it in if you really want to learn about pain, one of the really interesting places to look is poetry um, or, and philosophy because poets and philosophers have been trying to, to you know, have, not trying to, they've been discussing this for forever. Um, and so as we try to understand it, one of the things that sort of to circle back around is that we usually start with the idea that pain tells you that there's damage to your body. And we would say, well, that's correct and incomplete all at the same time. So that's one time that you can feel, you can experience pain. But there's many, many other aspects of pain. It's far more complex than that. Uh, we know that you can, you can actually uh, experience pain watching somebody else uh, in their pain or in their injury. Uh, we know that so we experience pain from sleep deprivation. It doesn't take much. We know we get pain from, uh, from grief. There's all these different aspects of pain. And so we want to look at it from as many aspects as possible. Um, and even look at it from the, the from the yogic perspective of it's uh, you know in in Sanskrit pain uh, the word we use is is dukkha and it becomes interesting there because uh, the word dukkha also means suffering and and it also means disease right it's not a definitive word it, it has a lot of different meanings um, but I find it interesting to consider that uh, within Sanskrit and within the yogic text we don't read anybody. Uh, or hear anyone talking about uh, 
a difference between emotional pain and physical pain. Uh, we actually hear uh, language that says that, that all pain is related to our, our disconnection from our true nature. And so I don't know that all the answer is there, but I know that it's, it's good to, uh, to use that perspective, to look at pain from that perspective as well, helps us understand pain from a broader view. And then to really, in the end, we need to come back to when we try to understand pain is to recognize the reason we're doing it is to, uh, to really, it's about the lived experience. We're trying to help people have less pain or to suffer less. Um, and that uh, whatever perspective we do needs to come back to a very human view of, of pain. So do you think that the reason that yoga is a is a intervention for pain with so much potential is because yoga is as multidimensional as pain is. I think that's a good way to say it. I, I, I think, you know, the, the paths of yoga are paths that can work for people with pain. I don't think it's the, the only paths, but certainly the, the reality, if we just, if we look from the Panchamaya Kosha perspective, um, we can address each one of those aspects of self within the practice of yoga. Um, and a person with pain will typically say to us that pain changes everything. If we flip that around, we can understand, well, if pain changes everything, then everything has the capacity to influence pain. And then we sort of step into the idea of, well, the, the practices of yoga, especially of Raja yoga, are specifically intended to uh, try to address as many aspects of, a, uh, of us as possible in a way to suffer less. Earlier, you said that we come to pain or thinking about pain from the perspective that it has to do with protection. Can you say more about that? We believe uh, through science and through human experience, really, that if we said the purpose of pain, the purpose of pain would be to actually uh, keep us safe or protection. So uh, pain is not only alarm, it's also there's all these actions that happen and the, the, the human organism has multiple protection mechanisms, um, and pain is obviously one of the ones we pay attention to most, but it's just one of the protection mechanisms. So uh, we can be protected through uh, muscles uh, gripping or through muscles being inhibited. Uh, it seems that altered breath could be uh, put in the, uh, the area of a protection mechanism, right? So when we hold our breath or we breathe in a different way, that could be as a way to help keep us safe. That uh, emotions are protections, that posture is protection, like all of these things are protection. And it's sort of helpful to think of pain that way because then we could say, is, all right, well, if it has to do with protection, then that matches with one of the other things that scientists tell us is that we have more pain when there's more evidence of danger and we have less pain when there's more evidence of safety. And so if, there, if we could create a greater, sorry, more evidence of safety, then there's a less need for the autom automatic or autonomic aspects of us to, to protect us. And so that would, uh, when we feel more safe, the protection mechanisms would turn down. And we believe that that in turn would, would uh, give us some, uh, would decrease the, in the intensity or severity of the pain. And has that been borne out in studies? Well, it's hard to specifically go right at it, but we know that uh, things that are interpreted as being potentially dangerous, uh, like noxious smell, uh, particularly loud sound, loud lights, physiological or psychological stressors, 
that there's a connection between each of these and more pain. And there's also, there's some good evidence that says that when we can uh, increase the evidence of safety. And I think this is one of the reasons, one of the other reasons why yoga, Raja Yoga can work so well is there's so much of it that we do, uh, it increases the evidence of safety. So things like ritual, even like a, watching a candle or certain aromas and certain, the way the teacher uses their voice, um, all of these things uh, can increase the evidence of safety and there seems to be a decrease in pain. But in terms of research, it, it hasn't been definitively shown. What we're seeing uh, is associations between these things. And then it seemed that makes sense from human behavior, but we don't have a full you know, cause, causal link between these. And this is one of the challenges in getting the mainstream medical world to take yoga seriously, I think, is the difficulty in doing high quality studies on such complicated topics. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, even within the, the pain management world, uh, you know, it's really expensive to do this. And so we get these high quality studies, but, but you know, at, at the end of nearly every one of them, the researchers are saying, so we've, you know, partially answered this one question, but there's still so many other gaps. You know, whenever we, we do a research study and show a result, what we really want as researchers is to be able to replicate that. You know, could somebody else do the same thing? Because is it possible that the reason that it worked is because, you know, maybe the, the, the teacher of the yoga within your study, uh, maybe they were a big, big factor and, you know, could another teacher get the same kind of effect? You know, there's all these, all, all these questions. Uh, but I got to say, in terms of the resistance, one of the parts of the resistance is that uh, in, in medical school, for most regulated health professionals, uh, there's this sort of implicit message that if you didn't learn it in school, then you really probably don't think it works. And, and so far, we don't have a whole lot of education uh, within uh, you know, pre-licensure education of healthcare professionals that, that tells them that there is some decent research around yoga. There actually are five meta-analyses um, that looked at other research studies. Uh, and in these research studies, they looked at using yoga as a therapeutic intervention for people with different chronic pain conditions. And so these meta-analyses uh, looked at um, yoga for people with chronic back pain, whiplash-associated disorder, fibromyalgia, rheumatoid arthritis, uh, osteoarthritis, irritable bowel syndrome, and there may have been a couple other ones. But they, they showed that overall the, the, uh, the effects were positive, that they, they were showing some positive effects with these. And of course, any meta-analysis always finishes with, we need more research. But we need to try to get that information into uh, university education, college education, uh, because if, if people hear it there, they're more likely to believe it if they hear it again after they graduate. Interesting. I was actually just having a similar conversation with my daughter yesterday. My daughter's 17, and she was asking me about diet and why more doctors don't talk about diet with their patients. And I was telling mm -hmm. her, well, you know, they're, first of all, they don't learn it in medical school. And secondly, mm. they don't trust the types of studies that, you ha that are only possible. So I think that this is mm -hmm. a very parallel thing where even though there might be clinical benefit in shifting a diet, it doesn't fit with 
what they've been taught at school and the way that they've been taught to analyze studies. Oh, exactly. And you know, the one other piece really is language is that, um, you know, being a healthcare professional and a professor, I get to, and uh, get to teach medical doctors about these things. And, and it's really amazing as if, if, um, if you understand the language that they've learned and you can talk to them in that language, they're way more likely to listen. But within, you know, within yoga, we've got a certain language and within, even within diet and nutrition, there's certain language that the doctors have never heard before or other health professionals haven't heard before. And so sometimes the way to at least open the door a little bit uh, towards uh, convincing people to consider these new ideas is to figure out how to speak within their language. And that's actually a big issue that we have around helping people who have persistent pain is that uh, when we have pain, we believe we, we know how pain works, right? Because if, if you ask pretty much anywhere in the world, uh, you know, what's the purpose of pain? They'll say, well, that's sort of a dopey question. The purpose of pain is to tell you you've been damaged. And that, that the inference from that is that if there's more pain, there must be more damage. And if the pain is not going away, it must mean the damage is not going away. And so the person comes with that belief. And uh, in part, what we need to do within pain care is to help the person to uh, recognize that um, that particular belief system can get in the way or be a barrier to recovery. And so in the, the Western side, we actually do sort of a cognitive intervention where we, we explain pain to people. We tell them about how it works and, and these things. We use a lot of story and metaphor because uh, story and metaphor are really powerful when people have a, a belief that's inconsistent with the one you're trying to tell them. But then what we can do in yoga is great is that yoga provides us an opportunity to use the yoga itself as an educational agent. So if you say had low back pain and I could uh, get you to do uh, some yoga practice that at the end of it, you could move your back with less pain. Um, this is actually an educational moment where I can say to you, so that's amazing. Your pain changes. Um, let's, let's look for all the other things that would change that as well. And that kind of an experience would be inconsistent with most people's beliefs about pain because they would be thinking, well, I have the pain because my tissue is damaged and, and I don't have a whole lot of influence over either my recovery or the pain. And so we, we can end up using yoga as, a, as this educational agent to provide people with uh, multiple and repeated experiences that are inconsistent with their previous beliefs about pain and recovery. Well, that's so interesting. And I love that because ultimately yoga is about inquiry and right. to get people into a state of inquiry mm -hmm. about their pain is to put them in a place of potential for, for making some shifts. So that's really cool. I want to bring you back to what you were talking about with language earlier, because I think that's so important. And I want to ask you, for some examples of how yoga teachers might talk to healthcare professionals using mm. their language, <laughs> and then maybe what type of education a yoga teacher who wanted to, or a yoga therapist who wanted to specialize in this, like where would they go for more education in how to speak that language? All right, so uh, where do people go for more knowledge and some examples? We may need to start the other way around and, and start with uh, learning more about, um, specifically about pain, to move forward. But I think when yoga teachers and yoga therapists are talking to health professionals, uh, I think the number one thing to, to recognize always is that 
uh, you're working with someone or you're probably talking with someone who's skeptical. So we start with that and, and recognize that your job is not to convince somebody of something new. What we want to do is say, what are the problems that this person has in their work? Right? What are the solutions that they need? So that this person, say, if we take the family doctor, they've got, they're working with people who have, have ongoing pain problems and they know certain things. Doctors know that this person needs that movement is good. And um, they've got a pretty good idea that, uh, that engaging people in movement, and especially in group movement practices, that these, these are helpful for a lot of individuals. And so if we talked about yoga from the point of view of a, a movement practice, then you're going to, you know, just from that, you don't need to talk about the yoga, you know, the yoga terminology. Is talked about how this helps people move with more ease, and that we know from science that that really in the end, movement of all the possible interventions you could do when pain persists, helping a person move with more ease is the most powerful, long-lasting thing. Uh, we also know from science that uh, contemplative practices or things like mindfulness and meditation can be of assistance. Uh, I think we often get the medical people when we talk about those things, they're sort of looking at us thinking, yeah, that's really great, but I don't want the person to sit still. I want them to, you know, get back to life. And so if we frame mindfulness and the contemplative practice of yoga from the idea of doing these will help a person to move with more ease, then once again, that sort of perks up the person at the other side saying, yeah, I have people who need that solution. Right? So the idea is that, that movement is good, but not everybody just moving by itself may not work. So if we add in these other practices of yoga that can help a person move more ease, and that's a, a great way to uh, help people with more recovery. Oh, that's awesome. I love that. So it's the reason that yoga is appealing is because there's kind of a dual purpose to it where there, yes, there's movement, but there's also the contemplative practices at the same time, potentially. And I think related to that is that there's a perception that yoga is more accessible than a lot of other ways of mm -hmm. exercising or moving the body. And I think that that's what draws a lot of people to it. I think so too. And, and I don't know that the medical profession has really sort of uh, understood this because I don't think the physical therapy profession really does really, really grab it. The idea that that social engagement is such a powerful way to help with uh, people recovering when, when pain persists and even to decrease pain. And so that ability to, rather than working with a person one-on-one, -on -one, but you know, you can do the one-on-one, -on -one, but also get the person within a, a group, a like-minded group, that there's, there's uh, physiological benefits to this. Um, and as you said, there's the other benefit is the lower cost. I think if, if we're in yoga teaching and yoga therapy trying to get uh, healthcare people to refer their patients to us, low cost and accessibility. It's one of the other huge issues that uh, they've got is that because they're, they're working within, within Canada, we're working within the system that, that, you know, the, the doctor is saying that physiotherapy costs too much for my patient to continue on with it. So, and, and so we'd want to, that's another piece, the, the, the accessibility piece to know what are the issues around that in your particular environment because I'm sure uh, in the United States, it would be different uh, and potentially different state by state around access. Yeah. And I'm really not very in tune with what it would take as far as getting insurance companies to pay. I mean, mm -hmm. even 
you know, here we call them physical therapists rather than physiotherapists. And I have a lot of friends in that field and most of them are going to a self-pay system. Most of them don't even take insurance anymore because under the insurance system, they don't have enough time to spend with each person to even help them. Right. Yeah. Well, that's, I mean, that's another massive issue, right? Is, is that, I mean, even within Canada, we're working with the doctors here to try to get so the doctors actually have more time with people who have chronic pain. So they have a billing code so they can spend more time with people with chronic pain because they need it, right? And it's like all the way along the chain, the person needs uh, more time because they need to be heard. We need to hear the story to figure out how to help them. And um, that, that access to that kind of... Uh, care is so important when pain persists. And like I say, I think that's one of the beautiful things about, about yoga is if a person can access it, um, they're there for, for a longer period of time and they're there with other people and they're there with, with someone who's going to um, support them and coach them. Uh, all those things that we need when pain persists uh, that you can get through um, uh, community-based yoga practices. I can tell you one really fascinating bit of research, and I just stumbled on this earlier this year, is an idea of autonomic synchrony, that when we are, when you put two humans together, that their autonomic nervous systems uh, can sync up when people are uh, feeling connected or, or like a compassionate connection. A good social engagement connection is that our autonomic nervous systems sync up. So, I mean, that's a fascinating idea is that we don't know whose nervous system will sync up with whose, right? Right. You know, I think we've had that experience before of being wound up and then ending up around another person or another group of people who aren't, who are calm, and be, just being in their presence has started to change our physiology and, and the way we're thinking and our emotions. And what's fascinating is there's research that's starting to say is we can measure this. This isn't some woo-woo stuff. We actually have measurements that say this happens. That's amazing. I wonder if we can also measure a person's ability to be the leader in that regulation. Mm. Wouldn't that be cool? Yeah. Well, and that's, that's the thing we, you know, the, I don't think the research has gone there yet. But I mean, it, it's fascinating that there was, I remember Steve, Part of Stephen Porges' work around the vagus nerve and, and his uh, theory, if I remember correctly, there was a study that showed that people who learned how to uh, improve their interoceptive capacity, and he was specifically looking at uh, the person's ability to more accurately say what their heart rate is in the moment. Um, and so when people got better at that, they also got better at um, detecting their own emotional state. And they also got better at detecting the emotional state of people around them. Wow. Right. And you're like, wow, this is, this, this, you know, it's incredible. These, these connections we're seeing. And um, even that uh, there was one study he was showing that when, when we are more compassionate to other people, part of that process, when we are being more compassionate with other people, it changes the physiology related to the muscles around our face and our eyes our mouth and our vocal cords. And even the little muscles around our, inside our ear that help us to uh, attend more specifically to the frequency of human uh, vocalizations. And so what, what they were actually showing is that in the end, uh, that listening to another person compassionately changed the physiology in a way that would downregulate sympathetic nervous system. And uh, of course, I read that. And what I really want to know is, 
could someone do this study where you actually listen to yourself compassionately and see whether that, what that does? I get excited about that because in, in the area of pain care, pain makes it really hard for us to do the things we need to do or that would help us get better. And uh, so we have a harder time succeeding. And when we don't succeed, we tend to be pretty hard on ourselves. Um, and we, there's this uh, commonality, not in everybody, a commonality around ongoing pain of, of being very dispassionate to self, you know, not, not speaking or uh, treating ourselves like we would treat, you know, uh, our best love in the world. So if, if you get all these positive benefits from being compassionate to another person, you know, can we show that you get a really, really great positive physiological response from self-compassion too. Ooh, yeah. I would love to see those studies. Yeah, it makes sense, right? It does, yeah. But, you know, a lot of things make sense on an intuitive level, (laughs) but then when we're talking about wanting to coordinate with people in the medical profession, we need to, like you said, we need to have language and part of that language is studies. (laughs) That's, That's part of the language they speak. Right. That's, that's a, big job for a lot of yoga teachers if you're not already educated in in science because there's all different types of studies so it's really easy to kind of be swayed by by a study that looks good but actually wasn't (laughs) wasn't well designed so it's it's a full commitment to learn about that but for those yoga teachers who are really excited about this topic it's I think it's worthwhile I also love what you said about the way that we can influence each other because that is the role of the yoga teacher. And I work with a lot of newer yoga teachers who Mm -hmm. struggle with anxiety and they are always looking outside themselves for ways to become a better teacher. And so one of the things that I am always repeating again and again (laughs) is this idea that the most important part of being a yoga teacher is your own self-regulation. So you can have a ton of knowledge and you can have a ton of skills in your pocket, but if you can't be present with yourself while you're teaching, which is a hard thing to do, it's not going to have the same effect. Uh, Absolutely. I think, you know, in terms of pain management, what we or pain care, we say to people that um, there are some, some of the people you work with who the way you are isn't going to be highly important in whether the person gets better. So that person comes in and you show them the practices of yoga and they get it and they attune to it and everything's great. But then there are other people that if, if we aren't self-regulating, it's going to be hard for that person to figure out how to do it. It's like the person needs to witness it happening to to experience it happening over and over again before they can actually start to find a way to do it for themselves. I believe that some people will need to come to a group setting where other people are working on the same thing at the same time. And that in the presence of other people through social engagement, uh, that now the person will be able to find a way to self-regulate. And I think we need to take it one step further is that there's a possibility uh, we need to consider as yoga teachers and yoga therapists that it's possible that this person in front of us may take their whole life uh, and during their whole life, they may need to be uh, around other people so that they can really, really effectively self-regulate. That the person's life or their genetics have set them up, that it's harder for them to to be able to 
uh, get the same benefits from yoga practices as as others. And and I say that because you know it, it's all this stuff is so important, and that uh, we sort of have in the world not so much in the yoga world but in the world this view of of self management, and that. If you, if you have an issue, say like pain, what I just need to do is show you what you need to do. And that'll be that. And we're missing the idea, as you pointed out, is that the, the relationship that I have with you may be necessary for those techniques to work. Yet it's also possible that it may not just be my relationship with you, is that you may need to be in a community for you to succeed with these things as well. These days, it's so different from how it used to be. The, the, the notion of community is very different. Mm-hmm. Many people are going online and so they're finding community. If they have a very unique situation, they're still able to find people to connect with, which is really great. And we're having less in-person community. And I'm imagining mm-hmm. that for nervous system regulation, you really have to be there in person. That's a really great, great point. And, and, you know, once again, it makes sense that person to person is going to be more effective, but it'll be really fascinating to see whether there are some people in the world who have the capacity to create an uh, intimate enough relationship or a close enough relationship with a person across the internet, right? Right. Say with Skype or something, maybe there will be some people who could actually do that and be able to reach out to people in, in distant communities. Um, but I think you hit on another big part around uh, around understanding the issue of pain is that, uh, and we've said already, the, the point of accessibility. There are you know so many people in remote and rural communities who have the same pain issues, um, and we uh, don't don't really know answers for that in terms of how do we create some sort of community based uh, a process that people could do there. Right. Well, what you were just saying makes me think of, you know, guided meditations that I've done that have certainly affected my nervous system. Now, it wasn't quite the same as being in person, but it still had an effect. Yeah. So, and it, you know, it, it's, it's, tempt, it's tempting to think that we wouldn't be able to do it, but maybe we can get some effect there or maybe we'll get the same. Better is better than nothing. <laughs> I think that's one of the other key things about this is that we know that students come to us and we may we probably have had the same experience of something happened and we got a glimmer of peace and i think that's that's sometimes the 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 thing that you know captures the person's attention you know if i had that once could i have it again and it, it, it motivates the person to continue to practice and continue to search and the one other thing i want just uh, in terms of pain physiology and and this actually isn't specific about physiology, but an experience I've had is that as a physical therapist, everything that I was doing with people was helping them move forward. We were making plans, we were setting goals, and you know, yes, it was compassion, it was collaborative, and there was all those things. But until I started to teach yoga classes themselves, I never knew, and there's nothing in what patients told me before that this sort of opened this door, is that some people actually need to find a sense of peacefulness before they can move forward. Um, you know, people would say this to me in the, you know, in the yoga classes, they'd say, you know, I'm getting better now. And the reason I feel like I'm getting better is because being in this class, it, it reconnected to me to, to joy or peace or 
know, truly being calm or truly being connected to myself again. And I was just, I was struggling all the time. I was, you know, even though I at the time wouldn't have said I was fighting, I was fighting. And, you know, you know this, the, the, the practice of yoga has given me an opportunity to, to, you know, find that sense of peace. And from there, I've been able to move forward. Oh, that's such a great point because we live in such a future focused culture. And mm-hmm. I think that's one of the things that I think that whether people are in pain or not, I think that's one of the things that is appealing about yoga is an experience of being satisfied, the self-satisfied self in the now. Yeah. And it's, it's um, I guess what it tells us is that there's lots of paths, right? Because some people do get better through this, this pushing forward. Um, and the, the nice thing about yoga is it allows people to, as you, you said, to, to explore different, different aspects you know, how we treat ourselves, how we live in the world, the way we breathe, the way we move, so many different things we can explore. And, and um, you know, it seems that for some people, it's like movements, the antidote for pain. For other people, uh, it would be more karma is the antidote for pain. And other people, it's bhakti, mm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, and and our, this is where we need to be careful in our view of pain. If we only view pain from a Western point of view, then we're going to miss this other stuff that's so, so important um, in helping people when they do come to yoga classes or a yoga therapist uh, for assistance with their ongoing pain. So I would love to actually zoom into something that you just said, an aspect of this, which is the yoga classes and the context of a yoga class, because a lot of the people listening to this are going to not be yoga therapists at this stage, but classroom teachers. And it can be very confusing when somebody shows up in a class and they say, oh, I'm in pain, or they try to do something and they say that hurts. So can we talk about sort of the physical aspect of pain within the context of a yoga asana class and some guidelines for yoga teachers who are not physiotherapists or physical therapists Mm -hmm. and how they can most responsibly respond to their students' communication about pain? I think what we want to do is to, as yoga teachers, the first thing we, we, you know, people will be thinking is, how do I keep the person safe? And so we need to start there and then at the same point recognize that we also want to not inadvertently create fear or a sense of fragility in the person in front of us. Um, somehow we need to uh, gain the understanding that the the human body is so wildly resilient that that even in the face of um, joints that have rheumatoid arthritis or joints that have osteoarthritis, that all the science would say, uh, you know, the best approach actually is some movement, not no movement. And and this becomes somewhat problematic for yoga teachers because um, sometimes the courses that uh, are being taught. Um, tell us that we need to be careful of not uh, damaging things and we need to protect things. And, and there's, a, there's a lot of language that's uh, inadvertently fear-inducing. And so what I would, I would say is the, that's the first thing we need to do is just be able to step back and say, all right, this person in front of me is telling me they have pain. I'm a yoga teacher. It's not my job to, to, to assess this. If it was me as a yoga teacher and I wasn't a physical therapist as I am, I would say, you know, I'd want to know, has the person seen someone to make sure that there's nothing nasty going on inside there? But then there's these other guidelines that we can get people to start to work on that we've been playing on for quite a while. And these are guidelines based on uh, the way that 
some people who have ongoing pain have approached movement uh, in order to get better. And what they've said to us is that the movement that they want to do is the, move, the kind of movement that they do where they uh, sort of go up to the edge of the increase in pain. So they don't try to push through it and they don't try to completely avoid any increase in pain, but they sort of go towards this a little bit more. And when they're there, what they do is they, they ask themselves uh, two questions. One question is, um, does this feel safe for my physical body here? And so this, as you can imagine, this requires some awareness and requires some discernment. You're not going to know right off the bat. But um, the person gets this idea of, well, yeah, I think it's safe, or no, I don't think it's safe. And if it doesn't feel safe, you say, that's not the right position for your body. That's not the right asana. You, we want you to be in a place where you feel like your body is safe and that you feel that you're not going to pay for it later or you're not going to regret it later. And then when a person you know, does that, so the person would say, you know, or maybe I should say it this way, as a yoga teacher, what you could do is you could say, ask a person to move into a posture that you know puts some stress on the body. Say you could use pigeon and say to people, all right, before you go in, just you know, evaluate how do you feel right now, what's happening in your breath, what's happening in your body, what's happening in your mind. And okay, now as you go into pigeon, go to that place where you feel that first sort of increase, that first tension or that first discomfort or that first your breath is getting tight. And just pause there once you get there and ask yourself the question, does this feel safe for my body? And if it does, you can hang out there. If it doesn't, you can modify the posture and then ask yourself, uh, do you think you're going to be okay later? And if you think you're not, then once again, modify the position. And then while you're there, do your very best to keep your breath calm and do your very best to keep your body calm and pay some attention to whatever that warning sign was. So you need to divide your attention between that warning sign and your body tension and your breath and your mind, which is the, am I safe? Will I be okay later? And so you get a person to start to do that. It allows them, it allows the, the, the students within the class to start to explore all these different things. And, and as people explore that, right, because they've just gone to the edge, so you know they're safe if they're just to the edge. Right? That's not going to cause any, any tissue harm when you're there. Um, because the, the, the first increase in pain that we feel is actually never tissue damage. It's always a system saying, you know, actually take it easy here, be careful here, or check it, you know, check things out and make sure you're all right. And so we asked that person to go to that spot and then to uh, monitor the discomfort or the alarm, their breath, their body tension and their mind. And what people will start to do is, you know, that increased awareness will often get people to realize, hey, you know, if I do this with my breath, I can change it. I do this with my body, I can change it. And so the person starts to, uh, it, this kind of a practice increases awareness uh, and increases discernment and, and will start to guide people to this idea of, you know, I can influence this pain with my mind and I can influence it with my breath. I can influence it with my body tension and I can influence by changing my body position too. So I've got more options. And I know that can feel sort of, you know, as I'm saying it here, if you've never tried it before, it sounds too it might sound actually really, really complex or it might sound far too simple. And what I would do is say to the yoga teachers or anyone who's, who's uh, listening is give it a try um, because we've been, we've been teaching this for quite a long time and a lot of yoga teachers have been able to take it into their class and weave this into their already wonderful language and uh, start to get people to be able to uh, make it through barriers that they never had before and starting to get people who, uh, we're afraid to move to start to realize that they can find some more ease in their movement. I love that you are 
giving the ownership back to the student. Yeah, that's part of it. And I guess, I guess at the same time as uh, we want to remember that part of our job in this scenario is to be a really good coach. Um, and again, back to that self-care idea is uh, recognize that the person in front of you is probably going to need to hear that just like all of our instructions, people need to hear it over and over and over before it, before it sticks or where, before the meaning really grabs. Because as some of the people I've, I've taught this have said, you know, you're asking me to juggle four balls and move, right? Or a person has pain. You're asking me, you know, to, to take good care of myself, but you want me to pay attention to my breath, my body, my mind, and the pain all the time, same time, and do this movement? Come on. Which, of course, I always say to people is, well, how many of them can you do, right? Juggle one ball at the start, start there. But I think what you said is important is that it's saying to the person that from out here as a teacher, I have no way to, to keep you safe other than to tell you don't do stuff. But what I can do is I can coach you to do the things that we do within yoga. I can coach you to be and guide you to be more aware Start to start to explore uh, regulation, to start to explore uh, more discernment of the multiple, we could say the multiple alarm systems, right? Pain, breath, body tension, the mind, these are different alarm systems. And uh, I should point out that some people who have fibromyalgia will say is, is you know, can I, can I use my sense of energy, uh, of using too much energy or sense of energy as an alarm system? We say, absolutely, yeah. Whatever alarm system you want to use, go ahead and listen to it because everyone's going to be different. There's a tendency in the bigger culture to view yoga as the performance of asanas. Mm -hmm. And that focus tends to drive people towards these more and more impressive looking asanas. And a lot of times within the yoga community, within kind of the more long-term dedicated yoga world, we're like, no, stop that. That's not important. <laughs> Stick with the basics because when you talk about how complex the attention, holding attention in all these different places is, how could you possibly do that in your in the most extreme version of a pose that you're capable of, right? So if you back mm -hmm. out and you build your capacity for attention within mm -hmm. the more simple shapes, then maybe you can start to take it towards the extreme postures. And at the same time, I think a lot of times once people recognize how rich it is in the simple shapes mm -hmm. with this focus, then they lose their hunger for those extreme postures. So I think this is mm -hmm. so helpful because I know that one of the things that yoga teachers struggle with on the other end of the spectrum from the people who are like, this hurts, I don't know if I want to do this, is mm -hmm. the people who are constantly pushing for the next shape. Right. It, it's amazing to see how uh, we do tend to fall into these two, two sort of extreme categories. Uh, even when we see people who have pain, there's uh, one, one approach to pain is to escape or to avoid. Uh, another approach is to um, push through, to be strong. And, and I think what we're both saying is that we need to find that, that, that middle path. And, um, you know, in terms of the, the more, the, the difficult asana, I totally agree with you as this idea is um, think about, 
you know, the asana is about finding a way to do this with ease. So ease means you need to be able to be attentive of your body, breath, thoughts, emotions, and heart, and find ease in those in this, this asana. And then I, I would also add, go for the heart, you know, go for the more difficult ones um, and do it with discernment. Um, do it in, in a way of finding ease in that next step before you move forward. Because um, there are those of us who that challenge is what, you know, we want that challenge. And that's a great challenge to do if we take good care of ourselves. And rather than deciding that the, the way to succeed is to be tough and not pay attention. The practice of yoga says, you know, you'll actually succeed best um, the more aware you are, the more discerning you are, the more able uh, you are to find uh, ease in these postures. And it's really fascinating, right? Because that same, same message is there in martial arts um, and same message is there in lots of other uh, difficult physical practices in the world is that, uh, like you said, you need, to, you need to succeed with this in simpler things. And then, then you'll be able to move on to the next, and then you'll be able to move on to the next. And when you do it that way, you're less likely to get injured um, and more likely to be able to continue on that uh, adventurous endeavor you've got. And to amplify something that you said earlier, for the yoga teachers who are feeling like, ah, my students don't listen to me when I say that, you got to repeat <laughs> yourself over and over and over, and it will eventually sink in. If they keep coming to your class, then they're getting something mm -hmm. from it, and they're hearing you. They will hear you more and more <laughs> over time. Absolutely. Well, when I'm when I'm teaching people to sort of integrate the, these sort of movement guidelines of you know, am I safe? Will I be okay later? And all that stuff into the class. Usually, what people will say is, I felt like I was saying it just too many times, and my my reaction is always, well, then you're almost there. <laughs> Right? You know, because you do feel like you're saying it too many times. And I think what you just said is so key is we need to hear it over and over in, you know, saying it in different ways, seeing it, saying it different times during the class when people are doing different things. And, um, and because that's, you know, it, it really comes down to is that's what the practice of yoga is, is to get people to be curious and to explore and to be, to, to increase that uh, internal awareness and discernment. I think one of the things I want to mention is that, you know, back in terms of the book, we get into a little bit of this in, in terms of the, the yoga and science and pain care book. But if people wanted to learn more about uh, this sort of movement program, I've uh, sort of joined forces with a, a big rehabilitation company in Canada called LifeMark. Uh, they've uh, taken a process that, that, that I built called First Five Steps. And the first five steps actually gives people some education about pain. There's some videos about uh, pain to understand it better. The next step is about breath. The next step is about body tension. And then the fourth step is actually these movement guidelines that, that we've been talking about. There's a visual there and some, some guidance through those. And uh, if anybody wants to have a look at those, if you, um, the, the website is actually lifeisnow.ca. So www.lifeisnow.ca. And when you get there, just uh, it says first five steps free. It's a fully free uh, process. Um, and so you can go there and, and check that out. Uh, if you're uh, interested in learning more about those, those movement guidelines and figuring out how to integrate that into your, your work. Awesome. That's amazing that you have that free resource. Before we wrap up, is there anything that you wanted to share today that you haven't gotten to yet or anything that you want to really emphasize? I think the one thing that I haven't said yet is if understanding pain is something you really want to get involved with, 
recognize that it, like what we've just talked about, it requires us hearing things a whole bunch of times because we all have our own ideas about pain already. And so we need to often hear this new information a bunch of times before we can sort of reconcile that with what we already thought and uh, just keep on exploring. And then on the other hand, what I would like to say is that if doing that's not what you really want to do, then I would, and you're a yoga teacher, then I would say is teach yoga. Um, you know, because the practices of yoga have all this stuff in there to start with. Mm, that's great advice because we don't have to be an expert at everything <laughs> in order to be a yoga teacher. You know, when I started teaching 15 years ago, there wasn't as many voices as there are now. Mm. I, there was, I, you had to really seek out a voice. You had to, you had to go study with somebody <laughs> right. in person. You had to read their book. You had to really kind of go deep and narrow. And um, nowadays there's so much access to little bits of information that are sort of spread out there and out of context mm. that it makes newer yoga teachers, especially, I think, feel like they have to be an expert in everything. So thank you for giving people permission mm -hmm. to focus on whatever angle or aspect of yoga they are most passionate about right now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the, 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 the partial knowledge, especially around anatomy, knowing anatomy without knowing physiology and tissue biomechanics and, and pathophysiology, um, sort of sets us up in an odd place. And so I would say the other thing is if you want to stick to being a yoga teacher and you know people are coming to you with these questions, find a way to create a relationship or relationships with healthcare people in your community. You know, find the, the, the physiotherapists and the, the, sorry, physical therapists, massage therapists, chiropractors, osteopaths who can help with those issues so that you can focus on being a, a yoga teacher and, and, sort of integrate your work with, uh, within the community and as, uh, within the healthcare community. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's awesome. So Neil, if people want to find out more about you or figure out how to study with you, where can they find you? My website is www.paincareu, the letter u.com. I've got a, a mentorship program for people who really want to dive into it. It's a 10 month long intensive distance mentorship program. Um, and also what you'll see on there is, is uh, we've created a thing called pain care yoga, which is more from the therapeutic side of integrating yoga to help people who have ongoing pain. And uh, you won't see it there yet. So as of this uh, January 1st, we are launching a new program that's called Pain Care Aware. And it's specifically uh, framing all this information for yoga teachers. Uh, whereas the pain care yoga curriculum is more around yoga therapy and one-on-one -on -one work, we're creating a, a, a process called pain care where the first step will be a bunch of online continuing education that you can do from your home. And then the second step will be uh, to uh, have an opportunity to practice it and get feedback and guidance about how you're uh, using this information in your yoga teaching. Oh, wow. Awesome. And is that you with Marlissa and Shelly? Or is that you with somebody else when you say we? Ah, so the we is actually myself and my wife, Lisa Pearson, who's um, Swami Swarupananda. So Lisa's a Swami and Kriya Yoga. And so we've been putting together this program. Uh, she owned a, a yoga studio in uh, Minneapolis and taught yoga teacher training for quite a long time. And so we've sort of joined our, our understanding of these things. And uh, we will be... Um, uh, we're hoping that Shelly and Marlisa will actually become uh, some of the teachers in this because we're, 
we're in the process of getting together a group of teachers so we can uh, spread this out as much as possible so that, that people can do the online work, you know, in the, the comfort of their home, but then to do the, uh, the sort of weekend that will be all about feedback and guidance that uh, we can get a crew of people who will be able to take this to the world so more people can start to integrate it. Oh, that's awesome. Well, thank you so much for kicking off this pain science and yoga series and for sharing so much interesting information and really practical application with my audience. Thank you so much. Well, thanks, Matt. Oh, it's, been a, it's been a pleasure, and I hope this uh, will answer some of the questions that people have when they're teaching yoga to people with chronic pain. In the beginning of the episode, I promised to tell you how you can win a copy of Neil, Marlissa, and Shelley's book, Yoga and Science in Pain Care. There are two ways to enter, one using Instagram and the other on iTunes. If you have an Instagram account, just search for yoga.teacher.resource and all the posts for this series will have specific instructions for how to enter, so you really don't need to remember. The basics are just follow us, Yoga Teacher Resource, Neil, Marilissa, and Shelly, and then either create your own post about the episode using the hashtag PainCareYogaGiveaway or comment on any of the posts about the episode using that hashtag. If you don't have an Instagram account or just you want an extra chance to win, leave a review of the Yoga Teacher Resource podcast on iTunes and email a screenshot of your review to helloyogateacher at gmail.com. All entries need to be submitted by midnight on Tuesday, December 17th, and I'll choose a winner on the 18th. Thank you for caring about helping people in pain. I hope that you'll join me again next week for part two of the series where I talk to Shelly Prosco about the specific practices we can use to help people in pain who show up at our yoga classes. Mm-hmm.